Come on, we love those kids. Hey, just before we get into the, uh, the uh, message tonight, I want to uh, talk a little bit about these child sponsorships that are up here. So, you know, we like to do some giveaways at the City Life Church. So I want to give three of these away tonight, but you've got to decide who's going to get them. You with me? We, we've made a commitment to Food for the Hungry. It's an organization that's international, and, 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 and they're active in lots of countries, but in particular, Dominican Republic. We've adopted a community there. And in order for us to, to, to cross the threshold of being a partnering church, we have to do 50 child sponsorships, and we've got it. we're going to give away three tonight. We're trusting that three of you are going to go home tonight. Forty, we're up to how many? We, we, have, we're, we need to do five more. There's three here and two there. Just three more. And then we're at two in Williamsburg that we've got that we're giving away. 47. So we're up to 47. So we're, we're, we're this close. Ours is on a refrigerator. I'm just telling you, 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 you don't, if you're not doing it, th there's three right here just waiting for you. So have you noticed how they've been up here in the spotlight for you all during the worship? So we know that God's already whispered in somebody's heart, you're supposed to take one of those kids home, right? So there's a card that's in here. I think it's like $32 a month. If you can't do that by yourself, then if God's speaking to your heart, you take it, you recruit one or two families, and you can sponsor the child together as a group. But there's a card in here that you'll fill out tonight before you leave and give it to Nick, then we can send it in. And so we've already begun to talk with them about their, their our first trip will be in 2014 uh, to this little village uh, there in the Dominican Republic. We, we're making a 10-year commitment to this community to bring them to a place of self-reliance, work with Yeah, You can clap for that to work with the church that's there in that area, and so it's a, it's a whole approach. It's a whole approach, just not for their, for, for their eternity, but also for, for this side of heaven. We want to make sure that we make a contribution, a lasting contribution to their life. And then when we're done with that community, come on 10 years from now, and we're going to pick another one and do another 10 years there. So it's going to be good. So we're just, I'm going to leave these here just to look at you. Are you with me? Just put them over here like this so you can see them. Is that good? All right. So this series that that, uh, that we're, we're digging into, there's an intensity to this series. I, I was thinking during the, the worship service, as I was praying for this moment of the service, I was thinking about times in my life, especially when I was younger, where you take a bite of something and you realize you've taken the bite, it's too big. You ever done that? I know you've never done that, right? You take this big bite, whether it's like a big like double bacon cheeseburger, and, you, and, you, and all of a sudden you've got all this in your mouth, and you go, I'm not even sure I can even chew it up, right? Anybody ever been there? Some of you were there earlier today, tell the truth, right? We were out after church last night, Little City Life, uh, last Saturday for uh, Hannah's birthday. And some, I forget what the name of the burrito was that some people ordered. But they were these just monstrosities, they came on plates about the size of the, this bistro table. And, uh, was, you know, you can take a bite of that and you're thinking, I've just got too much in my mouth. We want every week in this sermon series for you to feel that way. We, we want to give you a bite that's so big you're not even sure that you can chew it up. We're not always going to do that in our series. We're, we're, they're not always going to be th this intense. They're not always going to be this much ground that's covered. But part of this series is to say that we want to get into some of the meaty portions of Scripture. We want to get into some of the meaty parts of the Bible. And we want to give it to you in such a volume that, that maybe it's making you wonder whether or not you can digest it all and you can spend some time with it during the week. So... We get our notes up online at the end of the series, but if you want it before then, you can let me know, and I can email them to you if you don't want to wait. So Jesus stepped into the moment of the cross with six hours left to live and only 47 words to say. Six hours, 
47 words, seven sayings. He knew exactly what he was supposed to say. He knew the impact that it was going to have on the world, and it was going to reverberate throughout generations. And we're trusting that in this series that you're going to hear some of these things. If not for the first time, you're going to hear them afresh and anew. And so tonight, we're, we're, we're coming towards the tail end. We're on I Thirst, and then we've got It Is Finished, and Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, is where we'll go to wrap up the series. So we like to do a little participation here at the City Life Church. So so what are some times, we've done this question before, we get some really just great answers. What are some times when you've been the most thirsty in your life? Times when you've been the most thirsty. When you, you, you can remember it now, you're feeling a little parched. May? After her marathon, indeed. Nicole? When she started taking Zyrtec. Antihistamine, you're just feeling a little, little dry. And I know, I hear you, antihistamines will do that to you. David, enlisting in the military, lots of days of dehydration, boot camp. Somebody else, anybody? Wayne, after a soccer game. Yeah, anybody, anybody play some sports in here? A little, feeling a little dehydrated? Alan, surfing, yes, surfing. Somebody else? Time when you've been super thirsty, really thirsty. After your basketball game, who's a basketball player? Feeling a little bit thirsty if you're working hard? Somebody else? After a sunup to sundown fast, Joy, in the middle of the summer, indeed, you're waiting for that first moment of something to drink and how refreshing it is. Stephanie. After working, see, here you go. It just took us a little time, but we knew one was going to get there, right? After working 18 hours on the flight deck, in the Arabian Gulf. Anybody got something better than that, right? I know, she's just laying it out. She gave you guys some time to participate. Did you notice how she did that? She knew that she was gonna have the best one and she's like, I'm just gonna let them say a few things and I'm just gonna give it to them, right? I, for me, the, there's probably been lots of moments The one I was thinking about this week when I was praying through the sermon was, I remember I was home from college for the summer, so in the middle of the summer and, and I was digging some post holes uh, for my parents for a fence that they were putting up. And I didn't know that you could actually rent an auger, right? My, my dad withheld that kind of information from me. So, we, you know, I see some people doing it right now. Travis has got it, right? You're driving that thing into the ground. And so my mom makes iced tea, homemade iced tea, right? She lets it steep overnight and, and, uh, and then it like fills the jar with about halfway of sugar and then pours it in, right? And, and so she brought me out this glass half-gallon container that we used to buy, and I think orange juice came in it, but she would keep those, and she would fill those up with iced tea, and she brought one of those out to me, and I remember getting that after digging several post holes in the middle of summer, and just tipping it up right, and not tipping it back down until it was completely empty, right? It's running all down your face, and onto your shirt, right? It had so much sugar and caffeine, and I'm sure I was more dehydrated after I was done, but man, it felt good. You, you've been in moments like that, right? You've been in moments where you've been terribly thirsty, terribly hydrated, and the first taste of something to drink. You can feel it now, how refreshing it is. Jesus had a moment just like that 2,000 years ago. Jim Bishop, we've given a nod to his book a couple of times in the series, The Day That Christ Died. This is an excerpt. It says, full consciousness returned. And he looked around him. The world before him was clear. He saw the anguish of his friends. He saw the triumph of the priest who reasoned that he could not be the Son of God if in his pain he was calling for help from 
one who was only a prophet. I thirst, Jesus said. The words made a mockery of hollow sound on the little hill. Who could help him? He was there to die, not to drink. The muscles in his upper arms danced in spasms as he tried hard to hold himself high on his cross. Behind him, a soldier had heard the words. He stirred and stood and looked up at the dark sky. He picked up his spear, stabbed it into a sponge, then dipped it into a jar of pasca. This was the ordinary drink of the legionnaires and was made of sour wine, water, and beaten eggs. The dripping sponge on the spear was lifted up to the lips of the Messiah. He uttered a loud cry, but he did not drink. The vinegar mixture glistened on his cracked lips and rolled down off of his beard. The soldier shrugged. He flicked the sponge from the spear and sat down behind the cross. He was thirsty. If you got your Bible, you can turn to John 19. I'm going to start reading in verse 28. I'm just going to read through verse 30. This is our text for tonight. Since Jesus knew his mission was now finished, and to fulfill Scripture, he said, I am thirsty. If you don't have a good study Bible, you should pick one of those up. If this journey as a follower of Christ is new for you, a study Bible is a great way to begin to learn so many different things that the Bible has to offer. So like in this Bible, there's a little asterisk next to it. And it says that you can go down and then you find the reference, John 19.28, in the bottom of the Bible, if you've never done this before. And there it is, 19.28. It says, see Psalm 22.15 and Psalm 69.21. If you've never read Psalm 22 before, you should make a note of that. It's okay for you to write in your Bible. Make a note right there in the margin. Or if you're using an iPad or an iPhone, open up your notes app and put that in there. Psalm 22, and you will find a prophetic foretelling of the death of Jesus on the cross centuries before it happened. It's amazing. Verse 29, it says, A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch, and held it up to his lips. And when Jesus had tasted it, he said, It is finished. That's where we're going next week. Then he bowed his head and he released his spirit. So this is the idea that I want to put out to you tonight. We know that he was thirsty. When you look at the timeline of Jesus' last few days, we know that his physical body was dangerously dehydrated. Some people believe it could have been as many as 15 hours that he went with nothing to drink, while at the same time being tortured in excruciating ways. You've got the Last Supper. I'm probably going to go through this faster than you can write it down, but I can get this to you if you want it before it pops online. But you've got the Last Supper on Thursday evening. You've got the Garden of Gethsemane. Thursday, late that night, you have his arrest, which would have been pre-dawn on Friday. He was taken to the high priest. That would have also been pre-dawn on Friday. And then early morning, when everyone was stirring and Pilate was awake, they were waiting to take him there. So they take him to Pilate. They want him to condemn him. Pilate says, I don't want to have anything to do with it, right? So he sends him over to Herod. Herod sees him, sends him back to Pilate. Then, you know, Pilate gives the choice. Who do you want, Jesus or Barabbas? He's sentenced to death. He's tortured. And then at 9 a.m. on Friday morning, his last six hours are about to begin. And the 47 loudest moments in history are spoken. 
And two of them were the simple words, I thirst. And I believe it was the thirst of his divinity and not just the thirst of his humanity of which he spoke. And you and I have the water that he longs to take. You and I have the ability to quench the thirst of the Savior of the world. He spoke those words 2,000 years ago, not just for that moment, but he spoke those words for us today so that you could hear him. You can't travel. I can't travel back in time 2,000 years ago to give him something to drink, to deal with his physical condition. But you better believe that 2,000 years later, he doesn't have the physical condition, but something inside of him is still thirsty. And the question is whether or not you and I are willing to give him the thing that he longs to taste of the most. And the first one is this. He wants you to know him. He's thirsty for the world to know him. He's saying to the world, as he said, I thirst, he's saying, know me. It was part of the cry of his heart that he unleashed into eternity when he spoke those two words. And as we dig into the Old Testament, we find there's something interesting in the last of these six great sacrifices. There were six main sacrifices that, that you would engage in as part of the keeping of the Mosaic Law. The first one is the sin offering. The next one is the guilt offering. Those are the only two that deal with sin. Those are the only two that deal with you having committed some infraction, some indiscretion that violates the Mosaic law. The sin offering was a general offering that was just your way of coming to God, acknowledging that you're a sinner and that you're desperate for him. It's acknowledging his perfection and it's acknowledging your imperfection. It's saying to God, without you, I'm just not going to make it. Now, what's interesting is you dig around in the Old Testament, you realize, and we've said this before in this series, that if you were to make a mistake willfully, if you knew that something was wrong and you said, I'm going to do it anyways. Let's say you came up with some plan to swindle your neighbor. You ever, ever watch the show American Greed? The, the, all these con artists, that, that's one of our new favorite shows that we're watching. We watch that and we go, who, who, who would give them their money, right? But these people, they prey on unsuspecting people. So let's say that's you. Let's say 2,000 years ago, you're one of those people in your community, and you come up with some plan to rob people of their money. You know it's wrong, but you do it anyways. And let's say you get caught, and you have this moment of repentance where you realize it's wrong, you're willing to make restitution, you're not allowed to do any of this stuff. If you did it, and you knew that it was wrong, and you did it anyways, the Mosaic Law only gives Israel two options. You can either be put to death, or you can be ostracized from your community. That's it. These two at the top here were only reserved for people who do something inadvertently. It's only reserved for people who could say, I didn't know. It's only reserved for people to say, I didn't know any better. And there's a moment of grace that's extended to you in innocence. And so you'd be allowed to do a sin offering. It might be that in, in the circumstance like what we just talked about, let's say that you, you forgot to latch your gate and your oxen gets out in the middle of the night and tramples the crops of the person next to you. Now, if you do it on purpose, you're in trouble. You with me? But if it was an accident, you're still responsible. You'd have to bring a guilt offering and you'd have to make restitution for the loss to the neighbor. The last four 
the burn offering, the peace offering, the heave and the wave offering, and the drink offering, which we're going to introduce to you in just a minute, all of those had nothing to do with sin and only had to do with pursuing an intimate relationship with God. It was a way that people were invited into a place of worship, and we're going to talk more about that. So those are the six. But this last one, this grain offering, which was also a drink offering, is the only time that something liquid was used. This comes out of New Unger's Bible Dictionary. It says the grain and the drink offering recognize the sovereignty of God. And his generosity in giving us so many earthly blessings, pleasure and beauty and purpose. The people of God in ancient times would offer three things, these three things, that were representative of our earthly bounty. Flour being the main support of life, oil as a sign of richness and prosperity, and wine in celebration of vigor and refreshment. The drink offering had one singular purpose. It was Israel acknowledging the sovereignty of God. It was their way of saying, God, we recognize that you have the right to rule us, to govern us. We belong to you. 2,000 years ago when Jesus was on the cross and he said, I thirst, I think he understood that there was a drink offering that was offered in ancient times that recognized the sovereignty of God. And Jesus, Jesus is saying to you and Jesus is saying to me, I long for you to know who I am. I long for you to know that I am the sovereign king of this world. And I'm thirsty to hear you declare it. If you've ever had some questions about who Jesus is, the book of Colossians is an amazing book to read. It's the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. I'm going to start reading in 15, and then I'm going to go all the way to verse 17. This is Colossians 1, 15 to 17. It says, Christ is the invisible image, is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things that we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities in the unseen realm. Paul talks again about that in Ephesians chapter 6. Everything was created through him and for him. Listen to what it says. This is huge for us. The preexistence of Christ is what sets him apart from every other religious leader who's ever walked on this earth. Verse 17, he existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. He longs for you to know who he is. It makes him thirsty to hear you declare it. Anybody familiar with the Apostles' Creed? So I grew up in the Episcopal Church. Anybody else grow up in a church where you recited this all the time? Yeah, it's powerful, isn't it? There's 12 articles to the Apostles' Creed, and some historians believe that it was written because each of the 12 apostles, you know, after Judas died, they replaced him with Matthias, that, that, that each one of them contributed one of these articles. We don't know exactly how it came into being, but I like that one because it's a really good story. So, and, and, and many believe that it happened in the upper room, that they created this while they were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. The first one is this, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Some of you are picturing me right now in a robe and a collar. I know you are. From thence... 
He shall come to judge the quick, that's the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. That means the church universal, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sin, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. One of the greatest gifts my parents gave to me was the gift of knowing who Jesus is. One of the greatest gifts that my parents gave to me was the gift of knowing who Jesus is, not just because of what it does in my life, but what it allows me to do in his He is thirsty for his creation to declare who he is. He is thirsty for his creation to acknowledge that he is the sovereign king of the universe. It's hard to think of him having desire that we meet. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. But it is a powerful concept, isn't it? To think that you, in the limits of your humanity, me, in the limits of my humanity, as imperfect as I am, Jesus looks at us and he says, I'm thirsty and you have something that you can give to me. The question is, Will you allow your life to be poured out for him? We think about Jesus' life being poured out for us, but seldom do we think about this idea of our lives being poured out for him. You've got something to give him, and he's thirsty. All right, number two, we're going to do three. He's thirsty for you to love him. He's thirsty. He says, know me, and he says, love me. So David and Marina, they're celebrating their 18th wedding anniversary today. They were sitting right here, but I think they snuck out already, right? 18 18 years. So if you see them, you'll have to congratulate them. They was here earlier as we were working through this. And I said, I think this prophetically, I didn't know that this was going to be your anniversary, but I think this verse is right in there for you, huh? 18 years of marriage. Genesis 2.24, it says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Is it talking about a sexual relationship? Sure it is, but it's not just talking about that. Because what we know is the things in the natural are giving us a picture of the things that we can't see. The things that we do see oftentimes mirror the things that are unseen. And we believe when we sit down with couples that, that, that we're doing premarital counseling with, we tell them, hey, this idea of the two shall become one, this is real stuff. It's not just poetry. God's not just putting that in there to give you some lighthearted concept. He's, he's to, hey, the two become one. It's something that only can happen in the hands of a sovereign God where two people, they become one person. Doesn't mean that you lose your identity. It doesn't mean that, right, you, that, that you're connected to them physically in some way. But God does some work. And if you've been married for any amount of time, you know what we're talking about. There's this merging together of two. And you also know that it's not always easy to be merged together with another human being. It's a journey. And can you imagine if on that journey of becoming one, the only time you talked with each other is when you were having an argument? But outside of that, you would never talk. If that's what you did, you would probably end up talking a lot. You with me? What if the only time you went to each other is when you had a complaint? What if the only time you went to each other is when you had to say you were sorry? Somebody's saying, what, what do you mean there's more? Right? What if the only time you went to them is when you need needed something from them. What kind of marriage would that be? Even people who have never been married before know the answer to that question. It would be a miserable marriage. It would be a terrible relationship. It's not why you said, I do. 
But you and I, in our walk with the creator of the universe, in our journey with Jesus, so many times it's only those conversations that define our relationship with him. And I'm telling you, it leaves him thirsty. The first two of the six offerings deal with making amends. But the other four are about exploring, celebrating, and building intimacy with God. Is he only your forgiver, or do you know him as the lover of your soul? Now again, I know that this idea of, 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 of Jesus being thirsty, for some of you it makes you uncomfortable because it, it might be sending you down this path of saying, well, if he's divine, if he's perfect, if, if, if he is truly God, as we say that he is, how could it be that we could do anything for him? I, I tweeted this this week. This is how I think of it. Perfection is certainly the absence of all need, but it is most certainly the presence of every virtuous desire. I would suggest to you that because he is perfect, that he longs for these things. Because he is divine, these desires stir inside of him because he loves you. He's not some sovereign creator, ruler of the universe that's disengaged, that doesn't care like Greek mythology or so many other world religions that were given this warped picture of our creator. He is a loving father that is desperately, and we say that word carefully, desperately thirsty for a relationship with you and I that is absolutely loved filled. Do we come to him when we need forgiveness? You better believe we do. Do we come to him when we feel overwhelmed? Do we come to him when we have a problem? And we come to him when we have a complaint. If, if, if you've not ever had a complaint with God, then you've not lived long enough, but yours is coming. We go to him in those moments, but it cannot be the only times that we go. He is thirsty for something to well up inside of us and to tell him how deeply in love we are with him. And I know if you're a guy here tonight, that might be hard for you, but you're just going to have to get over it because that's what God expects of you, right? As macho as you might be, as tough as you think that you are, he has put a heart inside of you for him that might just be different than any heart that you're able to have for any other person. The toughest, grisliest guy in the world should be a blubbering idiot when he's on his knees in the presence of his creator. He wants you to learn how to fall in love with him. And if you think, I'm just talking to the dads, we'll get into it on Father's Day. If you think that your kids would lose respect for you to see you open your heart to God, that I'm just telling you, they haven't lived until they find it. That one of the greatest gifts that you give to them is the vulnerability that you show them that you have with your God. Need versus desire. He wants you to love him. Psalm 22.3. All right, let's, let's talk about this for a little bit. Come on, we're getting into the deep waters tonight. Psalm 22.3. This is the Amplified Bible, and I, I, I like this rendering. We've talked about this before. We're going to keep talking about it as a church because it instructs who we are and how we do things. Psalm 22.3 says, But you are holy, O you who dwell... In the holy place where the praises of Israel are offered. So it's called the Amplified Bible because it inserts, phrase, inserts phrases. If you don't have one or you don't have that downloaded on your app, whatever you use, this is a great Bible. If you get to a verse that you're having a hard time understanding what it means, that the Amplified Bible just adds some commentary. It's mixed right into the verse. Sometimes it expands a word. Sometimes it inserts a thought. But it does a great job of bringing the true meaning 
of the text. Now, in other translations, you might be familiar with this verse. that It says that God inhabits the praises of his people. And if you've been around church, especially churches like ours, for any amount of time, you've probably heard that before. We've been talking about this with our worship team. We talk about it often with our worship team. We believe that God's already here. We don't believe that anything that we do brings him here. We, we, you're not going to hear anybody from up here talk about God, we want you to come. He's been waiting for you to come. He, he's, he's, he's either omnipresent or he's not. He's here. So what we say as a church is that we want to awaken you to the presence of God that's already in the room. We, we want to be a church that awakens you to help you step into a, an environment and in a, in a setting where you're able to set aside the distractions of your life and, and, and be awakened to his presence to, to the point where you, you literally feel him in the room with you. Not just so that you can stand in awe, not just so that the hairs can stand up in, on your arms, not so that you can just have a supernatural encounter. We want all of that to happen, and we believe for all of those things. But one of the reasons why we want to awaken you to his presence is because he's got some things to say to you. But you know what? You've got some things that you're supposed to say to him. These words that are up here, these songs that we sing during worship, they pray over those, what's the song, what's the set going to be? They're believing to have the right songs for the right people, that the Holy Spirit's going to guide them and lead them and direct them. They're there so that you can borrow those words to help you articulate the feelings and the thoughts that you have about God. It might be that you start, you're just parroting. It might be that when you start, that you're just using those words because you're just following along, but at some point you cross some threshold. If you keep doing it, come on, right feelings, follow right actions. If you keep doing it, I'm telling you, you will be awakened to him. That's the powerful principle here in Psalm 22.3. Not that we lure him in, right? That our worship is like a bait that he's attracted to, but it awakens us to him and it gives us the words that we need to say to express our heartfelt, deep love for him. And if you're not sure whether or not you have heartfelt, deep love for him, then you keep working these pathways that we teach as a church. And I'm telling you, there's going to be a love that just bursts and awakens in your heart. He made you to love him. He made you to worship him. And there is something inside of you that's supposed to be beyond a robot, beyond obligation, and step into a place where you can't imagine life without it. So it was great because we were talking about this week. We were at a leaders meeting this week, and so David Godwin and I were, we're, we're talking after, and he was saying, he, he said, we, I, I, I believe all this stuff that we talk about, Fred, about, about this idea of, of, of Psalm 22.3, but, but what about the moments where, where it's, God just does unexplainable things, right? Because it, we know that he's here, but sometimes it feels like he's more here than other times, right? Admittedly, right? There's sometimes when you're, when you're with your kids and you're more present other times than you are. You're tracking, right? You're physically there, but you might not be paying attention the way that you're supposed, you're not engaged. I, sometimes, right, you might be that you leave a service and you say, theologically, principally, truth-based, I get it, Fred, I believe that, that God's here, but sometimes I, I just, I wish he was a little more here than he was. I, I hear you. That, that's one of the cries of my heart. Every week that we gather together, I pray big prayers, right? Just this week, I was saying, Jesus, if you, if you wanted to just walk through the back of that stage and come in here, we could see you physically. If you wanted to do that, we'd be okay with it. Half of us might die and come see you, right? But if you want to do that, you just, you come on. You with me? I hope you pray big prayers. I hope you dream big dreams, and I hope you ask God for big stuff. 
We say it all the time, I do not want to get to heaven, and God said, if you had only asked, right? I'm going to ask big, I'm going to ask often, I would rather have him tell me no than I'm waiting for you to bring a prayer. Ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find, knock and the door will be open. I want to be the kid where God has to say, okay, I, I hear you, right? And then I'm just going to keep coming again because he tells me that I can in his word. The widow that wears him out, I want to be that person. I want to be, I want us to be a church that has an appetite for him to move in ways that we cannot explain. I want to be a church that believes that God that we read about in this book is a God that still moves in our time today. David and I were talking about Acts chapter 2. We're going to be doing a series on that and the baptism of the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts. We're going to get into that. We're going to get into some more deep waters this year as a church. It's interesting, David and I were talking about that, you know, that they gathered together. It, there were, it was the Feast of Pentecost, which is 50 days after the Feast of Passover. And the Bible tells us that he, Jesus, appeared to people for 40 days. So most historians believe that they were gathered together in that upper room for about 10 days. And, and, and it doesn't tell us they did anything different on the 50th day than they did on the 40th day. They were doing the same thing every day, right? It just felt like some days God didn't show up, although he was always there. We want to be a church that, 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 that gathers, believes, celebrates, believes in the presence of God, but then also says sometimes there's just a 50th day where there's an open heaven and he does things that are just beyond human comprehension. We want to be a church that believes for that, but here, this is where it turns. But we're not going to be a church that feels ripped off on the days that it doesn't happen. Because God's definition of supernatural is much bigger than ours. God's definition of him moving in big ways is a little bit bigger than ours. It might be that you might leave here and you say because 14 people didn't fall out under the power of the Holy Spirit, which can happen if you read the story of the Garden of Gethsemane when they came to arrest him. He said, I am he, and everybody fell over. You would think that would have been their clue to go home, right? And so you might be here and say, I've never seen that happen. Hey, I'm with you. I've been in churches where I've seen that happen. It's, it can be real. It's not always real, but it can be because the power of God can overwhelm you in such a, a dramatic way. But we can't leave services where that doesn't happen and feel like he gave us less. Because what he gives is up to him, which is why we started with know me before we went to love me, because he's the sovereign creator of the universe. And if you're walking away saying, I guess I should have done something different, be careful. Because sometimes it's just up to him when he's going to move and his timing is perfect. It might be that God moved just as supernatural in the service. It just wasn't demonstrative and it wasn't visible. What about people who leave having learned something about God's word that they never knew before? I'm telling you, you might not be skipping and dancing to the car, but God is awash in celebration in heaven because truth has been revealed. What about people who discover relationships with each other that begin to set them on a course of discovering one of the rich things that this life has to offer. And what if that relationship is intended to prepare them for a crisis that's going to come 10 years from now? We might not see that, but I'm telling you, heaven's dancing because it happened. The longest chapter in the Bible is Psalm 119, and you know what it's about? Verse after verse after verse, it's about the study of God's Word. Even what we're doing now, it might not make the hair stand up on your arm, but I'm telling you, heaven is awash in celebration, the same as if Jesus himself manifested himself in a physical form, walked down these steps. You would tell that story. You might not tell the story of tonight, but I'm telling you, God is.
because he believes in the power of his word and the impact that can have on somebody's life. We have to be careful that our definition of the open heaven doesn't become too narrow that we crowd out other things that God gets excited about. And I'm just saying, one of the things that heaven celebrates is when someone maybe for the first time feels in their heart an affection for him. You might not even know what's happening. Just the other week, there was a young man who was sitting right over here in this section at the end of the service when we were giving people an opportunity to say, hey, if you need to recommit your life to Christ, and a hand shot up, and many of us didn't see it. I didn't even see it until after the service. Somebody came, and they were praying over there. There's people at the end of the service on either side for you for prayer after, at the end of every service. You might have left that service going. I'm sure God was really engaged in that thing tonight, Right? not heaven, because someone's life was changed forever. And heaven was dancing even if you weren't. I hope that you leave every week hungry for more, but celebrating the work that God did. He's thirsty for you to love him. In John 19, 28 through 30, you have this picture of a legionnaire with a sponge on the end of a spear, and he's holding it up to Jesus at a distance, trying to give him something to drink. And that picture is a picture for some of you. You, 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 you want to get involved in quenching Christ's thirst. You, you, you want to step into this place of, of having some relationship with him, but you want to do it at a distance, and you want, you, you want it to be in such a way that if you move, he can't follow. You with me? You like this idea of pursuing a relationship with Christ, but you want to be in control. You want it to be in your timing. You want it to be how you want to do it, and when you want it. It does not work that way. That's why he has the sign over his head, king. You with me? And that's why if you were here in the series, Inside City of Jokes, you've got a hole in your ear that says servant. There's, there has to be a moment where you abandon yourself to him. There has to be a moment where you're allowed to get a little bit uncomfortable with letting him in. There has to be a moment where you're willing to say to him, change what I need to believe, change how I act, shift who I am. Let me lay behind anything that I need to lay behind, pick up what I need to pick up. There has to be some moment, right? This is what leaving and cleaving is all about in married couples. I'm willing to give it all up for you. And the other person says, I'm willing to give it all up for you. The beauty is Jesus doesn't have anything that he needs to give up because he's perfect. And he brings everything that you need into that relationship. And you've got to be willing to lay down whatever he might ask of you so that your life can be joined to his. It's interesting, isn't it, that he's called, that we're called the bride of Christ. It's not an accident. It's interesting, isn't it, that we're called the bride of Christ. Guys, just everything else is masculine in the Bible, right? So just get over it, right? Now you know what it's like for them. The bride of Christ. Leave and cleave. Lay down the spear climb up onto that cross with him, lay your life down, and I am telling you, you will step into the greatest adventure that you could ever find in this life. Will you let your life be poured out for him? Because he's thirsty. All right, you want to do one more? You're supposed to say yes. All right, all right, that's good, that's good. The last one is this, he says, hear me. He says, know me, he says, love me, 
He is thirsty for you to hear him, especially to hear why he's there on the cross. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 23. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 23. I'm going to read to verse 24. So if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar and go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. So, so these words here, these are important for us. It might escape us a little bit until you connect them with the six sacrifices that we've already introduced you to tonight. So to a Jewish audience, which would have been the primary predominant audience of Jesus, when he's given the Sermon on the Mount, they would have understood this. Because in the Mosaic Law, you were not permitted to engage in any of the last four sacrifices if you had not done one of the first two and it needed to be done. Part of the Mosaic Law was do not bring one of these other four. Do not bring any of these other offerings here. If there's something in your life that you've not dealt with, and God here, Jesus here, uses the example if there's something between you and another person. The Mosaic Law said you cannot step into the last four if one of the first two is unresolved, and that's part of what Jesus is teaching here. But part of why he's saying it is to remind us that if we've got stuff in our life that we just continue to leave undone, it will be a barrier in our relationship with him. So, so this idea of falling in love with Jesus, we want you to discover that. But one of the ways that you get to experience that, if you take seriously the things that Jesus says to you, you've got to stop doing that. And if you don't stop doing it, the same thing's not going to happen to you that would have happened to the Israelites, right? Because the Bible is telling a story. Jesus was the sin offering for us once and for all. That's what we talked about last week when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the order of these seven sayings are significant. He could not say, I thirst, until he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is the moment in time where Jesus becomes the great sin offering. He became the great guilt offering for all of mankind. Because he said that, because he's now giving his life in an atoning sacrifice for you and for me, now he says to you and to me, I thirst. We cannot come to him. We cannot be in his presence. You, you have nothing to give to him until he has first died for you. It's the same as the principle that we find in the story of the offerings. The first two have to be dealt with before the last four can come. But just because the first two have come to the world through the life of Christ, it is not supposed to now be a license for us to do whatever we want. We're not stopping with know me and love me. We could have gone home and that would have maybe made you happy. But Jesus also says, hear me, because he wants us to understand. Once he's died for you, once he's, you make a vow of devotion to him, I don't think that you can sin your way out of grace, but it doesn't mean that those sins won't still have consequence. Part of him saying, I thirst, is he's thirsty for us to understand that even though there is grace, 
that will be extended to us in any circumstance. It's not like it was thousands of years before where if you did something intentionally, you either have to be put to death or have to be ostracized. Jesus says, no, the, the, the death of my life now, it can cover all sin. First John 1, 9, if you, we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and it cleanses us from all unrighteousness. But even though we're cleansed doesn't mean that he erases the consequence of the choice. Some of you here tonight, you are hurting because other people are sinning and you understand what I'm talking about because there is deep pain in your heart. For some of you here tonight, you're the person that's doing bad things and wrong things and you're hurting other people. God's gonna forgive that, but the pain doesn't always go away. So Jesus says to the world, yes, I forgive. Yes, I am gracious, but hear me, sin hurts people. I can heal it. I can redeem it, but stop hurting yourself and stop hurting one another. If the only thing that you're excited about is a grace that erases the responsibility so that you can get into heaven, you've missed the whole point. He dies for us to set us free, to release us into a transformed future. Listen to what he says here in Genesis 4. I'm not going to read through all of these, but let me just introduce it to you. Genesis 4, I'm going to start reading in 2, and then I'll finish it. It says, When they grew up, Abel became a shepherd, and while Cain cultivated the ground, when it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. And Abel also brought a gift, the best of his firstborn lamb, from his flock. And the Lord accepted Abel's gift, but he denies Cain's, right? That's another sermon for another time, but part of it is because there has to be something that dies, right? God's writing a story. It's prophetic. It's, it's the foretelling of there has to be a life that's died. When, 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 when God made clothes for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, part of that was that was the first animal sacrifice. It wasn't just to clothe their physical body. It was to clothe their spiritual body. Some, a life had to be given for the price to be paid. It's all telling the story of the death of Jesus. And this is this, this story here is what we were talking about before, where Cain wants to do it on his terms. He knew how he was supposed to worship God. He wanted to do it his way. He's the legionnaire with the spear standing at a distance. And if you continue to read in this text, God says to him, hey, Cain, hear me. Sin is crouching at the door, and it, wish, it, it wants to have you, and you've got to master it. And he says the same thing to you and to me. Even though there's grace when the sin comes, there should be something inside of us that says, I want to stop doing it. Now, we're never going to get there, but you know we like to say it all the time. We should get a little bit closer tomorrow than we were today. We know we're not ever going to be perfect, but 10 years from now, 20 years from now, let it be God that I've at least taken a step in my journey where I've learned to say no to the things that I need to say no to, yes to the things that I need to say yes to. I know there is grace to forgive me, but let me put less pain in the world through my life. He's thirsty for you to hear him. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven through 32, just for the people in the crowd that sin yet for it, but that's all the stuff in the Old Testament. You read here where Paul's writing his first letter to the church of Corinth, and he says, hey, for some of you, if you read the text, it says, for some of you, you're eating communion in an unworthy way, and you're dying because of it. Serious business, right? Hey, Jesus has already died on the cross. The doctrine of grace is alive and well. Forgiveness is unleashed into the world. These are people in the church. And Paul is saying to them, hey, if you're wondering why some of the people are dying around you, it's because you're saying to God, I'm going to do this thing on my own terms. 
I'm going to pretend to be one person when I'm with you, but I'm going to be somebody else out here, and I'm going to come. I'm just snubbing my nose at God as if I'm saying to him, you've got to forgive me anyways because you said he would. I think he still forgives you. He brings you to heaven. He just brings you there a little bit quicker. He says, all right, come on. Let's, let's have a meeting about it tomorrow. You read texts like this. We, we like John 3.16. There's nobody at the football game holding up a banner, 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 32. <laughs> woo Come on! He forgives. But because he loves you, he still holds you accountable. He doesn't take away heaven, but he will take other things. There is a judgment that comes with grace. And when Jesus died on the cross, he was saying to you, he was saying to you, hey, I'm going to forgive you. But I want you to know, you can still hurt a lot of people along the way. Don't do that. He's thirsty. The question is, will you allow your life to be poured out? I talk a lot about my story. December of 1990, I made a vow of devotion to Christ. But in the months leading up to that, the band can, can come back up. In the months leading up to that, I remember having this picture in my, in my head of Jesus dying on the cross. And this is, this is what I felt like Jesus said to me in this moment, in these, this season of life where I'm wrestling. Am I going to be all in with Jesus? This, I felt like he said to me, you did this to me. And I was overwhelmed by that. You know why? Because it's true. If you want to know the value of something, then you look at the price that was paid for it. If you want to know how much something costs, then look at what was paid. If you ever want to know how serious sin is to God, then you get a picture of Jesus dying on the cross because that's how serious it is to him. He's on that cross because of you and because of me, because of the life that we live. And there is a grace that flows, but it comes with a mandate for responsibility. He's thirsty for us to hear him. This is in John 4. Oh, come on, this is a good story. I know I'm off the clock a little bit tonight. John 4, it says, Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. Though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did, so he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way, and eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar and near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus was tired. The long walk, he sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Oh, he was a little bit thirsty. And soon a Samaritan woman came to draw the water, and Jesus said to her, Please, give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some. They were, they were snackers, these disciples. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. Jesus, she said to Jesus, you are a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. Why, why are you asking me for something to drink? And Jesus replied, oh, if you only knew the gift of God that he has for you and who you're speaking to he's thirsty for people to know him you would ask me and I would give you living water 
But sir, you, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where, where would you get this living water? And besides you, do you think you're, you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? I mean, can, can you offer better water than he and his sons and his, that his animals enjoyed? And Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water, I think he pointed to himself in that moment, Anyone who drinks this or the well becomes thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Stand with me. Jesus, we know that this is where it all turns. That, that on that cross 2,000 years ago, you said, I thirst. Because you want people to know you and to love you and to hear you. And in that moment, when those things begin to happen, as hard as it is for us to imagine, in our humanity, we quench the thirst of divinity. But this is where it turns, Jesus. You say to us, I know you're thirsty too. And if you want the thirst that is deep down within your soul that everything in this world has never satisfied, not a drink, not a relationship, not an opportunity, not prosperity, nothing of this natural world. He says to you and he says to me, if you would begin to let your life be poured out so that I could drink of all the things that my divinity longs for, it's only in that moment will the thirst of the soul of humanity be quenched. It's the upside-down kingdom that you give us, Jesus. And may it be that for someone tonight who came in here parched, who the lips of their soul, they're just chapped and cracked, that they would come to you. They would know who you are. They would let their heart overflow with love. And they would hear whatever it is that you would want to speak to them. And as they pour this cup for you, that all of a sudden this well of living water would just begin to spring up inside of them. Quenching the thirst that they've carried for a lifetime. In Jesus' name, let's worship together. The more I seek you
story of my mom. She's probably going to listen to the podcast. I'm going to get in trouble, but it's all right. You still get in trouble when you're 46, just so you know. That never really changes. I remember when we were, be little, we'd be in a car, you know, driving somewhere, and I'd be, you know, crying and whining about, you know, how thirsty I am. And, and you know what she said, right? It's the same thing you say to your kids. Swallow your spit. I'd be like, really? That's, that's the best you got? Come on. You brought me into this world so you could tell me things like that as, this, as we're passing by the 7-Eleven, right? Which back when I was coming along, that's that's all we had. God knows that you're thirsty. And he says to you, and he says to me, it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. Psalm 42, verse 1 says, As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for you, the living God. Where can I go to stand before him? Oh God, you see the thirst of our soul. And may it be that we would find our feet walking down these paths that you've called us to walk down so that our lives can be poured out to quench the thirst of the divine, but in doing so, that we are just awash in everything that satisfies that we would abandon these empty pursuits of the world that only leave us more thirsty than when we started and we would reach for those things that are heavenly and that we would drink deep, that we would turn up the cup running down our face, pouring on our shirt, walking wet, a cup running over. As you said to the woman at the well, and in so doing that it would be like springs of water welling up inside of us unto eternal life. 
heaven now, heaven forever. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. And everybody said together, amen. We'll see you next week.